Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of So I Married a Horror Fan. This is episode number 32. Um, and you are all very lucky that we're able to bring you this episode this week because England is currently suffering from a motherfucking heatwave. And I think I have sweated out an entire human being over the course of this oh, week. Oh, sorry, it's been so hot. <laughs> and with that out of the way, my name is Simon. I'm Lee. And yeah, so this is episode number 32. This is our last episode for July. So just before we get into the meat and bones of this episode, there are a couple of things that we're going to do just up top. So we are going to announce, for those of you that didn't see what we're doing in August, our August lineup is going to be very, very interesting. Um, so our August lineup is as follows. Next week, on the 2nd of August, we will be bringing you Return of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. They're back from the dead and they're ready to party. Sure. Um, on the 9th of August, we're bringing you Jordan Peele's Get Out. On the 16th of August, we have Friday the 13th, Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. On the 23rd of August, we have the original Candyman, um, in honour of the fact that on the 27th of August, the new Candyman by Nia DaCosta will be being released. And on the 30th of August, we will be bringing you John Carpenter's Vampires. Because John Carpenter apparently has his name in front of all of his movies. You can't right, just so you can't just say vampires. It's John Carpenter's vampires. It is. So with that out of the way, um, before we get into our actual review of this this week, what the film that we are covering, I believe you wanted to talk about another film very briefly. I did want to talk about another film very briefly. As it finally, I say finally, it's only like a couple of weeks behind the US release, but it went straight to DVD over here. So, what are we talking about? Werewolves Within. A little bit louder for the people in the back. Werewolves Within. Werewolves Within. Werewolves Within. Fucking Werewolves Within. Based on a video. Hey, Josh Rubin. Based on a video game, which is mental. What type of like you're the you're the gamer Boy, out of Joe, the two of I us. I know nothing. I didn't even I knew it was a video game. <coughs> I've never played it. It's kind of like from everything I know about it. It's an Ubisoft it's kind game. Of like, I know that much. You know the game we played New Year's a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where one town's person's a werewolf, and you have to fight, figure out who the werewolf is. This is a card game. Yeah, yeah. Just and it was like on the phone. I can't think what it was called. Yeah, I'm just saying it's a card game for yeah, people at home. Yeah, it's a card game. So basically, I can't remember what it's called, but you play it using your phone. Is it Werewolf at Night? Oh no, that's a fucking Marvel comic. Never mind. Uh, I can't think <laughs> what it's called, but yeah, we played it at New Year's with your friends, mm -hmm. and you basically so one person is a, a werewolf. Yeah. And you have to try and figure out who the werewolf is, and it's kind of a little bit like Mafia or uh, Wink Murder. Fucking weak murder, Jesus. Whatever you call it where you're from, like the game where you close your eyes, one person will kill somebody else, and then that's it. Duck, duck, goose. No, not like duck, duck, goose, but I know in some countries it's called mafia. Mm -hmm. Over here it's called winky murder, or wink murder. Mm -hmm. It has different names. So from everything I know about the game, it's very similar to that. So you're trying to figure out who the werewolf is. Is it a point and click game? I don't know. I have okay. no idea. I've never played it. The only reason I was so excited to watch it was Kiss. Josh Rubin. Yes. Who is my new favourite human being? It is true. I just fucking love Josh Rubin and I will watch everything he ever makes. It is true. <laughs> so yeah, it came out 
on DVD over here, finally. I on know. Monday, literally like the, the beginning of this week. Yeah. Well, last week. So, uh, being who I am, I basically uh, immediately uh, got a copy of it. Because <laughs> I've been waiting for this ever since we watched Scare Me. I've been waiting for Werewolves Within to come out. And we have very differing opinions. So, I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it as much as Scare Me. Um, I think, and it's, I think I, I think I liked it. I think I disliked it for the exact same reasons of the polar opposite reasons why I liked Scare Me. So I liked Scare Me because it was contained. It was two and at points three characters. It was very um, insular. It was very easy to follow. And it was it had a very intimate feel to it, which allowed uh, both Ayakash and Josh Rubin's performances to shine throughout the movie. Mm. And it kept you on your toes. Whereas this, because it's a larger cast, um, it felt a little bit cluttered in places. And it the weird thing about this movie is that everybody's meant to be trapped in this cabin. Spoilers if you haven't seen it. Like, if you want to just skip ahead a couple of minutes. Everybody's meant to be trapped in this cabin. And you've got all of these different, like, characters from this weird town. And everybody's automatically suspicious already, straight away. Um, but I just felt like the ensemble cast was a little bit too cluttered. And given the situation that they were in the comedy was pushed a little further in this movie than I would have liked. Yeah, that's a fair um, comment. And it's like you're in, a, you're, you're in a cabin with like people that you don't know and you suspect one of them's a werewolf. Now is probably not the time for everybody to be getting their zingers in. Um, I will admit, I did like the reveal of who the werewolf was. I like the way that that played out. And Sam Richardson is one of the finest actors working today and he is very very good at it it's very well directed because josh rubin has a very good eye i just didn't i think that it lacked a little bit of the charm that scare me did but i think that might be down to the fact that this was an existing property um whereas scare me was completely josh rubin's own idea yeah see i really enjoyed it but i think See, I feel like I feel a little bit similar to you of like it didn't really seem to it didn't quite know what aesthetic it was going to script-wise. <laughs> so I kind of get what you're saying. But I think part of the problem with that is that this was not written by Josh Rubin. Yeah. He true. directed it. It was written by Mission Wolf. Yes. Um which is hilarious. I love the fact that his surname is her surname, their surname. I don't know if it, I think it. I think it's a lady, actually. I am unaware of the gender of said person, so their name is Wolf. Um, but yeah, no, I think the directing was amazing. It's not, again, we've discussed this previously, it's not really normally something I pay attention to. Um, but I really loved the way it was directed. But I found that would scare me as well. I really mm. loved the way that movie was shot. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was just, if you want, like, a weird werewolf murder mystery movie, it's fun. Yeah. And it is exactly what it says on the packet. It is a werewolf murder mystery. It's a little bit like Clue if there was werewolves. Mm -hmm. People were referring to it as Claws Out. 
in like a in like a reference to like knives out they're like it's like knives out but with mm. werewolf they were calling it claws out yeah one thing i will say though as much as i wasn't as enamored with it as i was scare me um please everybody continue to support josh rubin buy as many copies of scare me or watch it on shudder or stream it or and same with werewolves of in because I really wanted him to do that Darkman reboot. So Josh Rubin has been angling for years to make a reboot of Darkman. Darkman. Darkman is a dark superhero comedy f- uh, film that was directed by Sam Raimi in 1990. Mm, um, and it's his passion project. And I just really want good things for him. And I feel like the continued success that he's having will eventually lead to that conversation at some point. I mean, to be fair, I'm not even saying it for the Darkman thing, because I don't really know what that is. But I just really want to see Josh Rubin have a great career. Yeah. Like, I want to see him get to do what he loves doing every day for the rest of his life. And Because I am madly in love with him. Somebody also pointed out, they were like, it's hilarious that in Scare Me he's writing a werewolf movie and then that is what he's gone to direct next. <laughs> so I, <laughs> that's one of my favourite lines in Scare Me is werewolves have guns, get revenge? Question mark. Question mark. To the point that I have a t-shirt, I wore it today in fact, that has that written across it, which is from Josh Rubin's... Scare Me. No, what what website was it from? Oh, I don't know, It's it's from his, yeah... So he's he has designed the t-shirt. It's done through. It's not Redbubble. There's no. another company that's very similar. You can you can just go, if you go to his Twitter page. Yeah, you'll be able to find it. And yeah, so he designed the t-shirt. So I went and bought it. <laughs> Basically, my entire life for, for horror movies has become support Josh Rubin and everything he does. Yeah, because he's my new favorite human being. Hmm. And the girl, I can't remember her name, but the girl who played the postal lady in it, who's like oh, Sam she's Richardson's. adorable. I love hashtag her so not Ellie Kemper. Much. Um, Milana, uh, Viantrop. Yeah, Viantrop. Van- Viantrop. She looks like Ellie Kemper. Sounds like Ellie Kemper, but is not quite Ellie Kemper. Yeah, she's so, fucking awesome in it. Yeah, so I would highly recommend going and watching it. Um. Or going and watching it? Is it in Yeah, so it's, in it was in cinemas in America and it's streaming on VOD in America. And if you're in America, you can get it on VOD for like six bucks. If you want the DVD, it's about a tenner over here on Amazon. You can just order it and have it like delivered next day. Yeah, but just please, 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 please go support Josh Rubin because he's my new favourite person and I'm... 100% here. And me. if, if, if by some miracle he hears this, I say this, he listened to our last episode. He did listen to, he listened to Scare Me. I, I would like to put out an open invitation for Josh Rubin to come on here anytime he likes. Uh, we could talk about anything you want. We could talk about comedy, talk about werewolf movies. I mean, to be fair, if we post this on Twitter and just tag him in it, he seems to just respond. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think, I, 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 we haven't really touched the subject of having guests on here yet. But no. I would love to have a conversation with him and just get, like, actually talk to him about some things. So if he ever, if you, if you do listen to this, um, just get in touch. Come on, have a chat. Um, let's make it happen. Also, in other news of stuff that's going on <coughs> at the moment that I'm, I'm madly in love with and I'm super happy and I'm enjoying it. Is this horror related? It is horror related. Um, so I've just started reading Women Make Horror. Yes. Which is, I want to, I always want to say written by Alison Pierce, but it's not. It's been collected and introduced by Alison Pierce. Collated. Collated, there we go. I would recommend this book. It's basically a series of like university essays based around women in horror. So female directors, writers, actors, 
actresses should I say uh, producers music design it's all about different women with horror and it is fucking amazing mm-hmm. so would recommend it it's also actually a university level it was made <clears throat> through a university and released through I think she Hull or Leeds she taught university. at Hull yeah um, but no it's done through like Ducal it's an American university oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been released yeah. through and it is if you're into filmmaking or uh, specifically female filmmaking, I would 100% recommend it. It's a great book and it's an excellent set of essays. Do you know what? I bought you that. I think I pre. I think I bought that for you like the day before Christmas Eve, I, and it was delivered on Christmas Eve as one of like a last minute Christmas mm-hmm. present. Because I and I think that was b- literally before we'd done the podcast. I don't think we'd even recorded the first episode then. I think we were just... No, we did because we started before Christmas. Oh, maybe then. We started in like the run-up to Christmas. But yeah, so I'm slowly getting through to the the books that you bought me. Mm. Yeah, because there's quite a few. There's like um, Men, Women and Chainsaws. Yeah, which I also have in my bag. It's like on my other. I kind of flip back and forth between the two of them. Um, You got me like Monster She Wrote. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder what I'd say Women Make Horror then again, but it's not. It's the science of women in horror. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you got me like a Marvel book about women in Marvel. Yeah, and I got you that Star Wars one as well. And you got me the Star Wars one. Power of a Girl and I can't think what the Star Wars is called. And we bought the Sadie thingy ones as we well. We did buy the Sadie ones I as well. I can't what her surname Sadie is. Sadie Doyle. Sadie Doyle, yeah, they're both really good as well. So yeah, currently I'm on like a, a feminist horror binge the, <laughs> in this, my reading. I haven't read the Dead Blondes and... Dead Blondes, Blondes and Bad Moms. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, book. but the other one, the train wreck one, is is heartbreaking. Um, especially, like, when I started reading it, because uh, obviously it talks about people like Amy Winehouse and um, Britney Spears, and I think we all know what's going on with Britney Spears at the moment. Yeah. We are very much on Team Britney. We are Team Hashtag Britney. Hashtag Free Britney. Um, but that's not what this podcast is about. No, it's not. Um, uh, I just wanted to bring it up. Yeah. I've been reading it. And it was such a good book. Also, also because it is, it was in the news this week as well. Because uh, Charlize Theron and uh, Andy Muschietti are making a TV series of it. Go copy yourself a copy of Grady Hendrix's new book, uh, The Final Girl Support Group. If yes. you if you buy the book, um, you can get a pretty sweet hardback deal, and you can get it signed. I think from Forbidden Planet. Yeah, I think Forbidden for Planet like do quid. still have signed copies yeah. available, and it's actually signed, so it's not book plated. Because the other book I bought from Forbidden Planet, so I got Thirteen Stories by Jonathan Sims, which people should also read because that's a great horror book. And um, that's book plate signed, so mm. it's like a sticker. Whereas the Grady Hendrix one is actually signed. And um, if you if you get the audio book of it. It's uh, read by Adrian King, who played Alice in the first two Friday the 13th movies. So it's actually read by a genuine 80s horror final girl, which is super sick. So So we're doing doing a bit of reading in the house at the moment, as you can tell. But yeah, my copy of Final Girl Support Group showed up at my mum's house and she had to bring it around because I ordered it before we moved. So I was like, I'll send it to my mum in her maiden name with, um, for some reason, her house number and then enter apartment number written underneath it. (laughs) <laughs> Ludicrous. Ludicrous. But um, what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about the David Fincher classic Seven. Or S E number Seven E N, as it's sometimes stylized. <laughs> it is stylized in such a way, which is why it's not called Fourteen Bear because it's Seven twice. Fucking yeah. 
So this is one of Simon's all-time favourite movies. I also found out the other week it's one of my mum's favourite films. My mum loves this movie. And one of my my mum's favourite movies. Yeah, and I've never seen it. This is my first time ever watching it. So before we get into it, do you want to do your do your bit? Also, this movie has two anniversaries. So while you're getting that prepared. Because last year, in America, it was released in September 1995, so it celebrated its 25th anniversary in America last year. But it was actually released in 1996 in the UK, so technically it was its 25th anniversary of the UK release this year. Because it was released on the 5th of January 1996 in the UK. Just kind of interesting. So, seven. Uh, We have... It was directed by David Fincher. Mm -hmm. It was written by Andrew Kevin Walker. Yeah. Good job, Andrew. And then cast-wise, we have Morgan Freeman as Somerset. William? Big Willie, yeah. William Somerset. Um, Brad Pitt as Mills, David. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow as Stacey. Tracy. Tracy. (laughs) Don't know why I called her Stacey. And then kind of the rest of the cast are a little bit I don't want to say irrelevant. Yeah, but I think they're not. They're like the movie is mostly those three people. Yeah, and then um, you've got Richard Roundtree, who also works at the police department. Who, for anyone of a certain age, was Shaft. Mm-hmm. He played Shaft, um, and then Arlie Ermery is the or is the police captain. He's their boss. Uh, potentially, because this is not in order of. Like, the, the cast listing mm. is in a really weird order. Yeah, so you've got Arlie um, Ernie, who was the police captain. He's just known as police captain. And then you've got uh, Richard Roundtree, who plays Talbot. Um, and then I guess we probably should put a disclaimer now. Obviously, for those... From now on, obviously, there are major spoilers for this movie. If you mm. don't want to know anything, just turn turn it off now. Go watch the movie, come back. But obviously, for those of you that are aware of this film, this film has been in the popular culture for half a, well, a quarter of a century now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Kevin Spacey is part he of this film. Is, he plays Jonathan Doe. We are aware, obviously, as everybody in the world is, of the horrendous, horrific allegations against Kevin Spacey. Um, so we will do our best to limit the amount that we talk about him, but obviously I due mean, to him to being be fair, in the past. Outside of this character, we're not really going to talk yeah. about him, because I have... I have a very little nice things to say. Well, that's what I mean. We're, we're just going to limit it to his performance. Um, <laughs> but obviously, because he is such a large part of this film, we can't not talk about him. Yeah, I um, mean, we'll, what we'll do is we will just talk about his character. <laughs> this is the only time we will mention his name. Yeah, because fuck him. Yeah, because fuck him, basically. Um, um, yeah, so plot synopsis. Plot synopsis, my favourite part. I fucking love this bit. So... Plot synopsis for this movie is as follows. Two detectives, a Rocky and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Pretty on the point. And I feel like methods as well. It should say motive and methods. Yeah. Because the deaths are all directly linked Mm -hmm. to the sins. So I'm going to start off because we're going to do a new thing on on, on the, the podcast now. So we watched the trailer for this before mm-hmm. we watched the movie. Mm-hmm. Now, ha- how 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 much 
of the movie that you watched was what the trailer advertised? I mean, the trailer was like it's a police procedural uh, about a serial killer, and that is what this movie is. Yeah, I thought I think the marketing for this movie is fucking genius. The trailer gives very little away. Yeah, you know, you know that there's something to do with the seven deadly sins. You know, there's definitely cops, mm-hmm. and it's a serial killer. That's basically all. Well, one of the really interesting things that this marketing for this film did was it didn't advertise that Kevin Spacey was in the film. So his name is not on any of the posters, he's not in any of the trailers, and he did none of the press for this film. Because of the reveal, Mm -hmm. they wanted it to be as surprising surprising as possible. possible. Um, I think... But I I think we should probably back up a little bit first. Mm. So obviously you've never seen this movie. Nope. Um, what were what were your expectations going into this film based on the things that I'd told you, other people had told you, and things so, that you just knew from little snippets? Going and stuff? into this film, Simon had stated, and this is pretty much verbatim: "You are either going to love this movie or you are going to hate it, and I don't know which way you're going to fall." So I kind of got into it with quite low expectations. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, like. Outside of it being like a police procedural, I was a bit like, it's either going to be actually interesting or really fucking slow. Because my mum was like, oh, it's a great movie. You'll love it. And I was like, "Ah, one of your favourite movies is Hellraiser. And you like the Saw franchise. Like, (laughs) come on, mum. I'm not taking you where you was. And then literally when watching it, she was like, yeah, no, I just watched it. She rang me midway through the movie to let me know she just watched uh, Joe Black. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, mum. Thanks. I was like, you're a weirdo. And also your mum loving it didn't help because your mum likes a lot of movies that I hate with a passion. Yeah, me and my mum have very similar taste in you films. You do? Like, for, for a lot of things. But obviously we do diverge quite a lot as well. But I say that though, me and your mum have gone to sit cinema together a few times to go see movies and we'll leave and his mum will be like, oh that was really good. And I'll be like, oh shit, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Or it'll be the opposite way around. Mm-hmm. I think the only movie we ever agreed on was Detective Pikachu. Yeah. We both enjoyed it. <laughs> we were like, it's a police procedural with cute fluffy animals. It was a win. Mate, okay. you imagine P- Pikachu in this movie. He's solving this crime. Instead of Brad Pitt. Yeah. <laughs> Pikachu. I would watch that movie. So, let's get your first impressions. You've just watched the movie for the first time. What were your thoughts on it? Do you know what? I quite liked it. But I think I quite liked it. For the same reason I love crime shows. Is I really love a good police mm-hmm. procedural. And, and it does kind of feel a little bit like a full-length like Criminal Minds episode. I was going to say, on that note, given the fact that you do watch a lot of things about true crime and oh, Criminal yeah. Minds, like how how is the actual procedural part of it? Oh, to... my God. So, you had to deal with me complaining about this <laughs> the entire fucking movie. At no point does Brad Pitt wear fucking gloves. Like, I'm not... No, I think he does, but not until, like, halfway through and only in one of the crime Mm -hmm. scenes. In, like, the rest of the crime scenes, he's not wearing gloves. No one is wearing booties either. So they're, like, the first on the crime screen. The fucking um, forensics team haven't shown up yet for a few of these murders. They're, like, the first people on the scene. And they're not wearing booties. And it really, really pisses me off. Because I'm like, you are literally tramping contamination into a crime scene at this point like and there's bits as well where like Brad Pitt just grabs stuff I'm like dude dude 
A, I don't, because we, we don't know really at what point they are in some of the crime scenes. Like, I know when we show up at the lawyer's office, the crime techs are in there. But is all the photographing done? Mm. Have they done all of the swabbing, all of the DNA, all of the <laughs> forensics? Because he just picks up a fucking TV remote. Yeah. Like, no, dude, you need to wait until the crime scene has been photographed. Because otherwise, they're not going to know where that remote was. And that might be important later down the line. I mean, it's unlikely, but they need to know where everything was laid out in the crime scene. And it was really, really winding me up. But in fact, there's a fucking scene in this movie where he goes, where he's not wearing gloves. He's got blood on him. And he's rummaging around, throwing shit about in a fucking closet. And I'm like, not only are you putting your fingerprints everywhere... You're not wearing booties, you're not wearing gloves, you're rummaging around, you're also coated in blood. So you are like, there's five different ways you are contaminating that crime scene. And that is the kind of shit that gets cases thrown out in court. (laughs) Oh, it angers me. Like, if you're going to do a police procedural, you need to follow police procedure. Like, I know it's not that interesting and it's not as cool as him sliding down a hallway and, like, throwing things about. But... It's a fucking police procedural. And to be fair, like, given how fucking meticulous David Fincher is, it must have driven him mental to film the scenes that way as well. Because he is known for his, like, everything being precise, like, work ethic. And what makes me laugh, though, is there's points in this movie where they really, like, they focus quite heavily on the procedural points. Mm -hmm. So there's one scene is quite far into the movie where they're trying they they so they know that the flat belongs to the killer um mills wants to go in because they have probable cause to enter the flat but they have no explanation of how they figured out this flat because there's some backhanded dealing going on with an, F- an ex-fbi agent and morgan freeman's character somerset, somerset it's like, we can't go in, we don't have a warrant. And there's a whole other conversation they hold about probable cause versus warrant and what they would need. And then fucking Mills kicks the door in because he's a dickhead. And there's a scene of, like, um, Mills basically paying off one of the other tenants to say that they'd called them in so that they could say they had yeah, probable cause. Yeah, some, like, cause. little homeless junkie kid. Yeah, so they can say that they had probable cause to enter the flat. Obviously, I realise this is highly illegal, but like it was, they they did have an information, like a reason to believe that he was the killer yeah. before he shot at them. So, like, I get it, but I'm like, you made a point of like pointing out like the requirement of having probable cause to enter a property, and then you're not following procedure at different points in this movie. And it, I'm like, you can't just decide which bits you're gonna do and what you don't. Especially since Morgan Freeman is always wearing gloves. He's not wearing booties, but he is wearing gloves. And every crime scene. They make a point of filming him getting the gloves out of the car and putting them on. (laughs) Oh, it angers me. It angers me so much. So, like, obviously, one of the the things I did want to ask you, um, because obviously I know that you love this shit, like, what do you think, and I hate to use this word, and I feel like if I ever met David Fincher, he would slap me for using this word, but what do you think of the gimmick? Because obviously the fact that it is the seven deadly sins is is the hook. It's the thing for the film. So, it's the thing that gets you to watch the film. Like, it is a gimmick. It is, it is the gimmick. So, I quite liked it. However, 
I had a problem with the fact that at multiple points during this, they reference um, uh, Dante's... Inferno. Oh, in, no, it's not called Inferno. There's an actual name for it. The books are called Inferno... Um, what is hell and purgatory and heaven but it's not called that it's called like it's Italian mm-hmm. um, I can't think what the it's Dante's I keep wanting to say Odyssey um, it, oh it's called Inf- Inferno um, anyway so they reference this book quite a few times in the film and it's like a major point like there's they basically keep referring back to it being uh, references to Dante's um, Inferno and the Seven Deadly Sins and the Circles of Hell. And then in this movie, they do not follow the correct pattern of the sins. Mm-hmm. And it, oh, it gets me because they made a point of using this, this book and I think they reference it in the film as well, that the sins are out of order. Yeah. Why the fuck put so much, like, focus so much on um, Dante's Inferno and then not follow the pattern of the sins mm. as they are presented in the book? Because basically they each represent a circle of how and it's this, he goes up through the circle yeah. of how it's hitting each sin. And, oh, I just... I just can't. It really upset me. It really upset me because I even said to you in the, in the when we were watching it, I was like, "They're not in order." No. And I'm like, "Why are you? Why are you referencing them?" If you I them <clears throat> I didn't realise that the seven deadly sins have like a specific order that they occurred in. Um, I don't know if they do in. Um. The Bible. I'm assuming there is like a specific order in the Bible, but I read the Bible once. And it was a very long time ago, and I don't know if they're actually directly in the Bible. But yeah, so in in um, the story, it basically it has an order to which the sins go, mm-hmm. and the fact that it is so heavily referenced in this film, and they don't follow that pattern, because I feel like with the way the killer presents all of this and the fact that he uses like Dante he uses Paradise Lost he uses all of these things that he he's very meticulous he would definitely follow the pattern yeah of the sins because of how meticulous the killer is mm-hmm. and it oh, it's a really silly thing to get irritated about and also like I, I feel like if you've never read like because I love Dante's work it's a seminal classic but if if anyone has the stomach for epic poetry it's well worth a read but it's a difficult read mm-hmm. because it is an epic poem it's a lot more like reading odyssey or paradise lost um but it's so good um but yeah i feel like if you're not a big fan of of it like you probably wouldn't notice it wouldn't make that much of a difference to you but, yeah, it pissed me off to no end. Yeah, I think that's the thing. Like, I think it, you're right. If you're not looking for it or if you're not aware of it, I don't think it detracts from the film itself. 
Mm-hmm. Like, the film still works. Like, the basis of the film and the basis of what the killer's motivations and, like, um, sort of modus operandi are don't really change because of it. Yeah. Also, it's called Dante's Divine Comedy. That's what go. the book's called. There you go. Yeah. And then it's Inferno, Canto, and I can't think what I have. Um, Paradiso. Yeah. Not Canto. Inferno. I can't think what Purgatory is in in Latin. And then the Paradiso. Mm. I can't think what the middle book is called. I don't own the middle book. I own it as a whole set, and I own Inferno and Paradiso, but I don't own Purgatory as its own book, which makes me really sad. <laughs> I also have the entire thing in Italian. Nice. I don't speak Italian, don't read Italian, but I have it. I've got a second edition printing from like the early 1700s in Italian. It was a gift. I don't know why somebody bought me it, but I love it. I still have it. I've kept it for years. So let's... Italian at some point. Let's talk about... The crime stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So... What are your thoughts on the way that each sin is depicted? What did you think of the actual sort of nitty-gritty of it? I liked, I liked the idea of them, and I liked the way that the 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 sins are represented in the deaths. So, like, we start with greed. No, we don't. We start with gluttony, and that person is basically force-fed to death. Um, greed. We take a pound of flesh which is a reference to the Bible, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what comes next after greed. Oh, it's... Sloth. Gluttony, greed. Sloth is basically somebody who's been trapped for a year, tied to a bed, not able to move. We don't find out what he did in order to... I think he was a drug dealer? He was a drug dealer and a paedophile. Oh. And so there is a connection between him... So Greed is the lawyer that was representing him mm-hmm. and then his fingerprints were used at the crime scene for Greed to make the police think that he murdered the lawyer after the lawyer got him off. Yeah, but there's no... What I mean is that a lot of... So, like, um, Greed is a heavily obese man. No, Gluttony is a heavily obese man. Greed is a, a lawyer who takes money to get people yeah. off for crimes that they have committed. Uh, Lust is a prostitute. Yeah. Um, Pride is like a model. Pride is a model. So Sloth is the only one to me that I don't understand the connection between his crimes Mm -hmm. and his punishment. Yeah, it's never really explained. Because that's the only one that doesn't get it. The other ones all make sense in the context of the movies of why they was picked for that specific Mm. um, sin. And yeah, Sloth is the one that I'm like, I don't understand why this was the person we picked for that sin because there's nothing about him that mm. specifically makes me immediately <clears throat> think of that sin his crime scene the scene where they go to his house is that like it is one of the best um best like moments in the movie mm-hmm. i will give you that so the the guy who plays him mm-hmm. uh was 96 pounds when david fincher hired him mm-hmm. and david fincher jokingly said to him to lose another six pounds and he went and did it. he went he came back as a 90 pound a man and it, they spent 14 hours 
putting all of the prosthetics on him for that sequence. Jesus Christ. Because the se- if anybody's seen the film, you know the scene very well. But the scene where they go... So they go to the crime scene believing that this man is the killer mm-hmm. um, because they've been led there because of his fingerprints. And essentially, he's strapped to a bed and they, he's got a sheet on him. And they pull the sheet off and he is basically emaciated. He looks like a boil-infested corpse basically he's essentially like a purpley gray color um and john mcginley john c mcginley's character who's like one of the police officers um says to him you you got what you fucking deserve and he springs to life and he's still alive and then you find out later that he's been like injected with drugs to stop his sores from getting infected and he chewed his own tongue off it's all very very nasty stuff it looks like a crime scene from Hannibal. Yeah. Um, specifically, Mason Verger's crime scene uh, in the film Hannibal, which is... Um, fuck. The one that Gary Oldman plays, who is a gay paedophile who basically has half of his face eaten off. Mm. Um, it, it is very reminiscent of that. But it is the centrepiece of the film. And the one moment in the film where you genuinely jumped, which yeah. I thought was... I was like, so I, I wasn't expecting it. Well, obviously, I knew how the scene played out. So I was like, this scene, I was like, I was like watching you to kind of watch how you reacted, and like, you, it was so beautiful watching you jump. But um, yeah, this movie. Um, so, little bit of context for anyone that doesn't know: this is David Fincher's second movie as a director. Mm-hmm. He only had directed one film prior to this, which was Alien Three, mm-hmm. uh, which he did for Fox, and he notoriously had a very miserable time making that film because the film was very much uh, taken away from him in the edit. But prior to that, he made his name making music videos. He made music videos for Michael Jackson, Madonna. I think he directed most of Paula Abdul's music videos, uh, Rick Springfield, George Michael, etc. So for me, that I think is the most astounding thing about this movie is that it's his second film mm-hmm. and it's this good and you can see the flourishes of who he becomes as a director mm-hmm. in this film. Like there's a lot of long shots, there's a lot of like um, the visual imagery that you can... Like it's not it's not wild to say that you can see shots in this that are in the fucking social network. And I'm mm-hmm. saying that because I'm trying to reference a film that you've seen, so you can kind yeah, of, seen, you can kind of, times. and he uses a lot of the same color palette. Like everything in this movie is dark, it's dreary, it's in a nondescript city, mm-hmm. it's raining all the time, um, and like the one thing they said about this movie is that Gwyneth Paltrow's character, who is uh, David Mills's wife, is the only sunshine in the film. She's the only thing that represents like any anything good basically Mm. which is kind of an interesting when you find out obviously later on in the film what happens to her it's kind of like that last piece of like hope being kind of taken away yeah um but the weird thing about this movie is and i don't know if you picked up on it if you watch this movie and you'll probably notice it if you ever watch it again is this effectively this movie isn't about john doe no this movie is about the fall of david this movie is about how David Mills goes from being this like wide-eyed cop to essentially committing cold-blooded murder. Like it's about taking an innocent man and turning him into the very thing that it's, he hates. It's one interesting thing is that we never really find anything out about David 
prior to him moving to the city. Yeah, except for that one story that he tells about being in the shootout and going into the ambulance and watching one of his partners die. Mm -hmm. That's literally it. Because you don't really find out anything about him or Tracy either. Mm -mm. But there's certain... Like, I don't know how to read their relationship because the scene when they're together... So there's a scene quite early on in the film where she invites Somerset to have dinner with them Mm -hmm. and you see them, like, as a couple and it's the only real time in the movie you see what they're like as an actual couple when he's away from work. Mm -hmm. But you never... You kind of... I don't want to say that she's afraid of him, but you kind of get the sense that they don't have a particularly strong relationship. Like the scene when she's calling Somerset to say, look, can you meet me tomorrow? Because I need to tell you something. Can they have the conversation? But then she's like, I've got to go. And she's calling him behind like Mills's back and things like that. I read it slightly differently. So it's not so much... I think it's that she doesn't really... She doesn't know anyone in the city. She's very uncomfortable. She doesn't want to be there. And they've obviously moved there for Mills' job. Mm-hmm. That's why they have moved. Yeah. So I think it's not so much they don't have a comfortable relationship or a happy relationship. I think it's just that she is very unhappy with the situation as it is currently. Mm-hmm. And I think with you saying, obviously, she calls Somerset. I don't think that's a... A, a, like purposeful doing it behind David's back. I think it's a she doesn't have any friends mm-hmm. in the city and she has nobody to talk to and she's like I know Somerset. Yeah. He seems like a, a, a man who would give sound advice which is he, he does like I would take advice from Morgan Freeman in a fucking heartbeat. <laughs> but literally yeah. if he said you need to do this I'd be like you know what Morgan Freeman? Yes. <laughs> Whatever you say to me. Because he has he has the face and the voice of a man you just instantly trust. Yeah. Because he's probably going to give you good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of what that is. is it? So she doesn't really know what to do with the situation she's in. And she's like, he seems like a trustworthy and nice man. He seems like he would give good advice. Why do you think she doesn't tell him she's pregnant? I think it's because she's not really sure how he will react. And she doesn't want kids. She says that. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want children. So I think she's not quite sure how she feels about the situation. And as as horrible as it's going to sound, once you tell your partner, you then, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's out in the world. And I think she's still coming to terms with the idea of being pregnant. Yeah, and whether she wants to... And whether she wants to be a mum or not. Yeah. Because once you've said those words to somebody, there's no putting them back. No, it's a bit of a Pandora's no box. No putting it back in the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I don't think it's so much a, a like, conscious decision. I think it is very subconscious about, oh, what the fuck I need to do? I don't know, do I tell him, do I not? Like, what happens if I tell him and he wants a baby and I don't? And yeah. Everything like that. Um but I like the little relationship she builds with Somerset. I think it's really cute. And also, like, the, the interactions between the two of them is the only time we really find out anything about either of their personal lives. Yeah. So we find out David was... Uh, David? Um, Somerset was previously in a long-term relationship. We find out that Tracy and David were high school sweethearts. Um, and she says that she knew she was going to marry him after their first date because he was the funniest person that she'd ever met. Yep. <laughs> And, and then in their later conversation, we find out that um, 
the woman I'm assuming who was the woman um, Somerset was going to marry actually fell pregnant and he didn't want to be a dad and he kind of pressured her into getting rid of yeah, the baby yeah. and because that's kind of what he says to her is oh, I didn't want it and I you know I did a I did a really terrible thing and he's he's in no way smug or proud about what he did he even said like he the way Morgan Freeman acts scene I don't know how it's supposed to be was written but he pro- plays the scene in a very guilt-driven mm-hmm. way yeah um so yeah um, but yeah, I like the relationship those two build, and I like that that's the only way we really find out any personal information mm-hmm. about anybody in this film is through Tracy. Yeah, it's one of the things, and I I, I think it is a real testament to um, David Fincher and the projects that he picks up, um, because every one of his films, every character mm-hmm. in his films feels like a real person. Yeah. And they make real decisions based on what real people would do. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at his... I mean, I, I can't really talk for you because you've not seen a, a spectrum. But say, for example, you look at someone like Detective Mills, you look at someone like Detective Somerset, they act like detectives in their job at their respective parts of their career would act. Mm-hmm. So, you know, David is still kind of learning to not be so emotional mm-hmm. and there's that sequence where they're at the house and he gets harassed by the photographer who we later find out is obviously the the, the, the killer. killer and you know uh, somerset calmly says to him they pay for information and they pay well but it is impressive to see a man act out his emotions and you can kind of see that in a in an alternate universe or in another life somerset may have been mills and he may have gone down that path. And I think that's why, after initially saying he doesn't, doesn't want to work with him, he agrees to, because he can see him going down a similar path to what he did. And yeah. he wants a better life for him than the life that he... Yeah, so basically, so what you're saying in this is that Mills is basically a mirror image of a younger Somerset. Yeah, and he and doesn't Somerset want him... Somerset doesn't want him to follow the same trajectory that he did. Yeah. And I think, again, that goes back to what you were saying about the relationship that he has with Tracy. You imagine he looks at Tracy and he sees what he could have had. Yeah. He's like, in an alternate universe, this could have been me. And strangely enough, the the end of this movie could have played out very differently. Mm-hmm. And we'll, But I'll talk about that in a, in, a, in a moment when we get to the end of the movie. But yeah, I think that's one of the great things about this movie is that every character feels like a living, breathing character. And they're not just doing the stereotypical rookie cop, cop, old like old cop, young cop kind of tropes. Mm-hmm. Some of the tropes are there, but it's played in a much more realistic way. Mm-hmm. Having, you know, having never worked in that job or been around people that do, I don't know how realistic it actually is. Somebody who's in that field of work could turn around and say it's all complete bollocks, mm. and they'd be right to do so. But you know, so I guess the big question is mm-hmm. because it's the main reason why you watch the movie. How did the killer reveal play out for you, and what did you what did you think of the second half of the movie once you knew who it was, and then to the conclusion of the film? So. I think how to word this. It makes sense 
to a degree in the way that we find out who the killer is. Yeah. So for anyone who, who isn't aware and is still listening to this not seeing the movie, um, basically John Doe hands himself in at the police station. That scene is sensational. Yeah. So he, for his character, it makes perfect sense. And for anyone who's watched a lot of crime dramas or like especially with things like Criminal Minds and stuff like that, it makes a lot of sense. However, I feel, I feel like it is super unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Because I've never heard of like a serial killer who was getting away with things so well, just handing themselves in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the second half of this movie kind of goes a little bit crazy. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair, a fair kind of comment. It goes a little bit off the rails because just everything kind of happens at once. Yeah. And I, I, I still don't know how I feel about that ending. It's when the end game comes into view because you start thinking he's doing it for fame or he's doing it for notoriety or he wants to be like as as David says to him when they're in the back of the car when they. So basically, he ha- after he hands himself in, he makes, tries to make a plea deal with his lawyer, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. He says, look, there's two more bodies. He wants Mills and Somerset to take him to this location at 6pm. He will show them the bodies. If not, if you don't agree to these terms, he will plead insanity and he will get away with everything. Mm-hmm. If you agree to these terms, he will sign a full confession now and confess to all of the crimes you you'll get your way basically yeah and then you kind of start thinking well what is the end game and i think david questions him he says you're nothing he says you're a fucking movie of the week you're like you're a fucking t-shirt basically he says, yeah because they're trying to figure out what he wants whether he wants to be famous or notorious or what the end game is but then you realize it is the end game is david yeah and what that part of it, what what are your thoughts on that part of it? Like, the revelation of it's all been leading to get David to do the thing that he gets him to do at the end. So, yeah, the... Uh, the reveal at the end that this whole thing was kind of a... a play to get to David doesn't make the most sense Mm -hmm. so Jonathan Doe must have had this plotted out because as they say like the the guy that he uses for sloth has he's had in captivity for a year yeah um so he's been plotting this for for years it's been planned meticulously so obviously the last two deaths in the pattern don't make sense in that context because David's only been in town like a week, mm-hmm. if that. It's like his fir- the first crime scene we meet him at is his first day on the yeah. job. So he, throughout this movie, he has only been with this police force for a week. Yeah. And... John Doe doesn't meet him until after the third yeah. murder. Wow. He's he's not dead yet. Well, we, I'm assuming he died in the hospital. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Um, but like, that's when he first meets him. So this basically means that when he meets David, 
day three of his killing spree. Mm-hmm. He then and there decides that he wants David to be one of the victims of this whole plot. And in the remaining four days, he rearranges his entire plan to draw David into it. Unless he has been watching David for a lot longer than that. But that that doesn't make... I get what you're saying, but also he would have no way of knowing that David was eventually going to transfer to the same city as him so he could use him as part of this plot. But, as he turns around and says to him, I get 100% where you're coming from and I'm completely on board with what you're saying. But as he turns around and says, when he says to him about Tracy and what happened, he said, it is unbelievable what police officers are willing to do or willing to pay for information. Uh, Yeah, willing to to give give money. So there's nothing to say that he wouldn't have been privy to transfer records or things like that. No, I know what you're saying, but also... I know, know, it doesn't make any fucking sense. For the majority of this film, so let's say he moved there like a week before he started his job. Mm-hmm. Which is about average. Is that a good? I yeah, yeah. We're never actually told, and I don't think it's even that link. I think he literally arrives like two days because they're still all in boxes. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, even saying that, that means he would have had to plan meticulously a year in advance, knowing that he was going to miraculously transfer to the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is no way a year beforehand when he started act- enacting all of this with the guy for Sloth, he would have known that David was going to transfer to that yeah. city. And that in context makes zero sense yeah. at all. Also, what doesn't what else doesn't make sense is that he basically makes this whole thing about Tracy. And he's like, you know, they'll give you whatever information you want if you pay to him. So he is saying, so what? We see him on Thursday, Friday, mm-hmm. at the house. Everything finished on the Sunday, right? Yeah. So that means between that Friday to Sunday, he has bribed a police officer, got all of the information for Tracy, followed her to know when she's home, so I'm assuming she also has her job, and broken into the flat, done something with the two dogs that live there because he has two like rottweilers Mm -hmm. Uh, basically held her hostage in her own flat tried to do the husband thing with her killed her handed himself in at the police station sorted the whole thing for the box yeah in two days and at no point in those two days has David been home well no the only bit of that that makes any sense is the Wednesday into Thursday because he sleeps overnight at the police station and then they go straight back to work. Yeah. So you would assume it would have been in that point, in that time period. Yeah. But the the, the finale doesn't take place till the Sunday. Mm. Yeah. Which means that, so Wednesday to Thursday he's at the police station. That means Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, he hasn't been home. All right, can you stop ruining the end of this movie for me now, please? No, but do you know what I mean? Just, no, I do know what you mean. The minute you start picking, a lot of this plotline falls apart. But you're... And this... I was really enjoying the movie. And I did enjoy it. It was a fun film. It was an, oh, a fun sort of word for it. But it was an enjoyable movie to sit and watch. But my problem with it literally starts the moment John hands himself in at the police station. Mm-hmm. That is when all of my problems with this film start. But then, 
like as I said to you, there's nothing to say that he hasn't been watching and orchestrating the whole thing with Mills for over a year. I mean, you have a point, however... Like, it, it, it feels like it, it would have... But also, I feel like if that was the case... Because if you think he keeps meticulous diaries, because mm-hmm. Somerset reads them, he has photographs of all of his victims, everybody who's involved in the plot, all over his flat, we would be privy to the information that he had been following Mills for a year. Yeah. Because they make a point of pointing out that he has the photographs of Mills and Somerset from the third crime scene. Mm-hmm. So I refuse to accept that if he had been following him for a year, he would have not mentioned it in the diaries, which are like meticulously kept notes mm-hmm. on everything he does. Or there wouldn't be photos of like Mills and Tracy and Somerset all over his flat. Do you know what though? There is a really easy fix to all of mm-hmm. this and to all of the ending. Is you just make fucking a like it's Somerset? Yeah, you make Somerset envy. Yeah, which is what I was driving at earlier in the part, of the, the earlier part of the conversation. Or you, you make him wrath. No, no, no. You make you make Somerset envy. Yeah. So you so Somerset in the finale takes the place of John Doe, mm-hmm. in that you have what I could have had, and you you use the same dialogue. So you have you have the box with her head in it. You have John Doe having the same conversation. But instead of it but being... you turn them on each other instead yeah, of turning Mills yeah, on John Doe. Yeah. yeah, that would have worked. And that's the easy, that's the easy the fix is, around is the whole thing. we have the conversations throughout the movie between Tracy and Somerset of him basically saying, I was in this situation mm-hmm. and I made the wrong choice. I was yeah. in this situation and I made the yeah. wrong choice. Over and over and over again. So and they already have a fractious relationship. Mm-hmm. Him being envy would make sense. Yeah. You are correct in the context of this film. But yeah, I think it is that last kind of 40 minutes of this movie where it does start to unravel and it unravels very quickly. Mm. Um, but I think it's just because I'm really nitpicky when it comes to stuff like that. Because if you're going to do something... like The only thing my brain is telling me that is that he basically rearranged his entire plan because he must have already had somebody picked out to be Wrath. Mm-hmm. Well, there is... A... <laughs> There is a Cinema Sins video on this. Yeah. And I can't remember if I've watched it or not, but I, I think I think they address it in the in the Cinema Sins video. So maybe watch that. Maybe watch that. <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't think fin- I don't think Fincher or Andrew Kevin Walker have ever addressed it. No. Um but yeah, no, like to be honest, I'd never really thought about it because you don't think about it because the ending is so shocking and the ending yeah. is so like what the fuck you never really think about it. You always just kind of... You kind of... I guess it's like a, a weird mand- mandala effect. You kind of just assume that at some point you know that information or you know the reason why he's targeting him. Yeah, I guess. And like the thing is, it makes sense. Um, but you, you have a habit of doing this. You have a habit of taking movies that I love and going, ah, actually, it's fucking bullshit. <laughs> well, it's not that, though, as well. It's because like, at the end of the movie, he makes this whole thing about how... You know, um, Mills has everything he wanted and, like, he is envious of Mills. But I'm, like, at no point, at any point in this, everything we've learned about John Doe as a character makes me believe that he would be envious Hmm. of Mills having, you know, a job as a police officer, a woman who loves him, like a baby on the way, like... I think, in all honesty, he just uses it as an excuse to get David to kill him. 
Yeah. But I definitely think if you make it Mills and Somerset as Wrath and Envy, the ending of the film makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I mean... I guess. I don't know. It's just that last bit of the movie really... unraveled the whole thing for me and I'm really sorry that I've basically just but like ripped a movie you love to shred. So the thing I what going back to a happier thing the thing I love about the movie is the kind of amalgamation of different real life killers that John Doe is in this movie mm. and this this movie is the primer this is the movie that make that that no lets you as an audience know that ten years later, Fincher is capable of making Zodiac. Yeah. Because there are certain elements to John Doe's character that are very similar to the Zodiac, and particularly David Berkowitz. They're the two that I feel like he is the most like, because all of the notes and the collecting and the clues and all that stuff is very similar to um, the Zodiac and the way that the Zodiac operated. Whereas the whole thing of him saying that he's been chosen by a higher power and the religious theme behind the killings mm -hmm. is very similar to David Berkowitz. Yeah. Which, and I think there's an off-colour joke where at some point during the film, Mills says, he starts listing things that are like actual, like true life things. Like he mentions Jodie Foster at one point because there was a Jodie Foster stalker. He mentions like his dog told him to do it, which is actually like Berkowitz's MO. Mm. Um, so I really like the I, I really like the fact that even though John Doe is a fictitious killer and the things that he are he is doing are sort of fantastical in a film setting, yeah. they are very much based on the the actual um, crime patterns of real life killers. Mm. Um, and then obviously, as I say, ten years after this, David Fincher goes on to make Zodiac and. You know, this is kind of like his warm up to make Zodiac, which is a fucking tremendous film. Um, but like going back to kind of what we were saying last week about you not really enjoying slow paced films. How did you think this film was paced? And what did, was there any points in this film where you like fucking like this is dragging? So generally quite fast paced, but the problem I have is it kept slowing down. So it like hit a really good pace and then it'd slow back down. Mm -hmm. And then it hit a really good pace and then it'd slow back down. And I'm like, man, just let's, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> like, cause we get the first three sins, the first three, the first two yeah. sins super quickly. Yeah. They're like, boom, boom. And then we don't get another kill. From for about half an hour. For about half an hour. And then there's another, like, good length between that and the next kill. Mm -hmm. And then obviously there's another massive length between that and the fifth. Yeah. And then six and seven just happened at the very end of the film, like, at the same time. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I don't... Uh, I enjoyed it. But, yeah, no. Now I've started unravelling it in my brain. I'm just nitpicking all of these little <laughs> things that I'm like, oh, yeah, that wasn't great. And how do you think it works as a horror movie? Do you class it as a horror movie? This is an interesting topic for discussion because a lot of people have always said David Finch has never made a horror movie. But this is considered to be a horror movie because Zodiac is much more procedural. I mean, if you thought that this film didn't depict procedurals very well or if you thought this film was particularly long, 
Zodiac is two hours and 40 minutes long and it is basically all procedural. I would probably quite enjoy that. I quite like procedural. But I, I genuinely... I think this and I think Gone Girl are horror movies, but I think they're horror movies for very different reasons. So. Because it's not necessarily about... It's kind of like what we said. There was a, a director that we mentioned previously and I can't remember who it was. But I feel like this movie and particularly Gone Girl, it's the horrors... Of humanity, it's it the was horrors. Those fucking Midsummer. Yeah, Ariasta. It's the it's the it's the horrors. It's human horror. It's the horrors that humans. So in Gone Girl, it's the things I, of I, like know, you know, know adultery and stuff like that. Whereas in this, it's like Same. it's more of a human based horror. It's not like a slasher or something like that. It is. This is horrific because this is things that happen in the real world on a daily basis. Okay, so personally. I wouldn't call this a horror movie. She says, sh shuddering. I know, sorry, my little pony, my little pigtails like, went across my back as I said it, and my entire body went, oh, gross. Um, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't class this as a horror movie, but I think it's because it reminds me of a lot of shows that I watch, and I would never class those shows as horror. Mm -hmm. So, like, Criminal Minds, for example. This really reminds me of Criminal Minds. And I would never call that a horror show. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a couple of episodes that have horror elements to it, but it, it's a, a crime show. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a crime film. Yeah. It's more of a... The thing is, I wouldn't even call it a thriller, because it's not particularly thrilling at any point. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm not, that's not to shit on this film, but, like, it's not like... There's no points in it where, like, my heart was pumping or I was, like, on the edge of my seat. It was just like a slow, methodically placed, like paced mm. crime drama, but as a film. Um, so no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it. A do you movie. do you think the fact that you have watched so many crime shows kind of took a little bit away of the film's impact? Maybe I feel like. Or do you think you went into it thinking it was going to be way worse than it was? Yeah. So because right so. I was kind of going into it expecting a lot worse, especially because when we first started watching it, the first death, you were like, um, oh, babe, I'd put your food down. Like, this this gets pretty gross. So I'd, like, put my food down. I was, like, fully prepared for, like, there to be, like, uh, puss or, like, like, like innards falling out. Or, like, to them, they, like when he, cause they lift his face up at the very end and there to be, like, gouges missing from his face or, mm. like, everything. And it wasn't. It was just like you were you were referring to like the bloated skin and all of that. No effect on me whatsoever. It's gross. This is to the look woman at. I sleep with every night, people. It's gross to look at, but I've seen so many crime dramas, and you forget as well, babe. Like when I was, I don't know if I ever told you this. When I was younger, I wanted to work in a morgue. Like I wanted to be Jonathan uh, Davis. Jonathan Davis, yeah. No, I wanted. To, I, I looked at um, working in like funeral directors or uh, as a, a morgue worker. So, like, stuff like that's never really bothered me because it's what happens. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like, when you die, it's what happens to your body. It's it's not particularly pleasant, but that, that's what happens. Yeah. It's, um, so, no, I think going into it, because of kind of how you said, like, the crime scenes are really quite horrific and horrible, I went into it expecting a lot, lot worse. Mm -hmm. Um, it's no worse than what I've seen on TV shows. And, yeah. And, and you know, we, we've discussed this before. I can sit and watch crime shows for like six hours straight without blinking 
and she'd be like, eh, it's fine. I'm like eating my dinner while people get there, like, like they're walking around the crime scene with people's guts scattered <laughs> everywhere, and I'm just sat there eating my dinner, like, this is fine. See, I think for me, I think I always, I always remember it being worse than it is. I, I mean, I didn't watch this film particularly young in life. Um, I was quite a bit older when I watched it for the first time. Um, and it was the first sort of David Fincher movie that I... It's the, it's the movie that made me fall in love with David Fincher. Um, and for those of you that don't know, I may have mentioned this on previous podcasts, he is my favourite filmmaker of all time. I think him and Wes Craven are the two greatest to ever do it, which you'll get a load of people like, oh, Scorsese, Tarantino, blah, blah, blah. Like, everybody has their own opinion. But I think, I think David Fincher is the most meticulous filmmaker and he has an, an exceptional hit rate and i think the first time i saw this movie i think again like because of the way the crime scenes are shot your brain is kind of tricked into thinking that it's worse than it is yeah like it's when people talk about texas chainsaw massacre so in texas chainsaw massacre there's actually no gore in that film original film but everybody thinks that that you see like the hook go through the girl you, you think that there is more violence in it than there yeah. is and I think it's a, a same with this. I think because of the nature of the crime scenes, I think over time my brain has just kind like of started gone, filling in the blanks yeah, of like, it's, oh yeah, that's really graphic. Yeah, like the one particularly for lust. Thankfully, immersively, they don't show it. Yeah. But your brain fills in the blanks of what happened. Yeah. Which I think ultimately in a film like this makes it a lot worse than it is. Yeah. I don't know, I think it's one of these things, like, stuff with, like, crime scenes and that I've always been a little bit immune to, because it, it's what I wanted to do for a living. Like, I mm -hmm. wanted to work in... To the point, actually, where I, I originally wanted to become a profiler. Mm. I I had a life plan. I don't know if we've ever discussed this on the show, but I got... So I, I had a full-blown plan. I got... Um, basically to the point of like my paperwork was sorted to transfer so I was supposed to move to America at 16 mm. and I had my paperwork all sorted to transfer to Harvard Graves High School in Maryland <clears throat> and then I'd also had um I'd been I'd had like preliminary preliminary acceptance to study uh criminology at the University of Maryland or the uh, Maryland College I don't American, you call it college, it's strange. Um, which is like one of the top criminology universities in America. It's the, like the top of the list to study criminology. And um, I wanted to join the FBI, I wanted to become a behavioural profiler for the FBI. That's what I wanted to do with my life. And then 16 year old me went, I can't leave my mama. So like, I, because that was always kind of my plan in life, I became very immune because I studied, I was always very interested in it. And then when I went to college in the UK, I studied um, psychology, sociology, criminology here. Mm. And you see a lot of, like, I went to a criminology um, seminar. So we, we basically went to a university. And then um, we, we went and physically took part in, like, we did fingerprinting. We did, uh, there was, like, talks with cat like, actual cat burglars who were, like, professional that had been their job before they got arrested and turned their life around. Uh, we did, like, crime scene photography. So, like, it doesn't really affect me because I built myself up of, like, this is what I want to do for mm -hmm. a career. So you kind of have to just become a little bit immune to the grossness that goes with it. Yeah. And um, once you've sat in a room with a massive, like, university lecture hall with the big screen and had, like, fucking actual crime scene photos in front of you. Yeah. And spoke with, like, actual, like, detectives and... 
about how they, you know, how quarantines are processed, what you have to do, like everything like that, you kind of just go, nothing's as bad as seeing the real thing. I think it's interesting that we both had similar life plans because I think around about the age of 17, 18, I had considered it as a career as well. Like, mm. I think I've mentioned this previously. We've definitely in our personal lives had a conversation about this. I've always been fascinated by what it is that makes people do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is it in someone's brain that makes them go, today I am going to get up and murder someone? Yeah. So like most people will get up, they'll put on clothes, they'll have breakfast, they'll go to work. And at the same time, there is somebody at some point in the world that is like, I am going to get up today, I'm going to have my cereal and I'm going to murder someone. Yeah. Or I am going to like eat someone or something along those lines. Yeah. And for the longest time, I was fascinated. And to, to a degree, I am still kind of fascinated by, like, things... Not so much singular crimes, but, like, how crimes Cereal happen... And stuff no, like no, no, that. no, 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 no. Like, I'm not talking about single-person crimes. Oh. So, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to put things in here that are going to be uncomfortable for people to listen to. But you know when you see, like, groups of people that commit crimes? Yeah. So, like... It's like the pack instinct. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, as a person, approach somebody else? So, as yeah. per, as, as person as person Y, mm. what makes you go up to person X and go, I'm really into this weird thing? Because it's, it, it's one of those things, like, as you said, it's like Pandora's box. If that person isn't into the same thing as you, how, how do you broach that conversation? So, I know the basic psychology for this. So basically, with something like this, with like that, with the idea of it being a group of people, um, they basically will prey on weaker, other weaker people. Yeah. So they become good at profiling. Mm-hmm. So they can know, like having conversation with somebody, you don't just go straight into it and be like, hey, do you fancy killing somebody? They'll meet these people, they'll build a bond, and then they'll kind of realise, oh, hang on a second, so this person's, like, really weak world, they have, like, severe parental issues, and they basically use the things that they've learned about them, they've profiled about them. There is a film that came out that is an excellent example of this. It's called Murder by Numbers. Mm-hmm. It's got Ryan Gosling, Sandra Bullock, and Michael Pitt in it, and that is exactly basically the plot of the film. But that that, you just that's, described. that's how you end up with like yeah. groups of people who kill together. Is there'll be an alpha mm. who? So Charles Manson is a great mm. example of this. He was charismatic. He knew about psychology. He knew about like profiling people, and he would find people who were weak and easy to manipulate. And he would twist them and manipulate them into believing that what he thought was correct. Yeah. And that's how they do it. They profile people. Same as it's the so people weird. who hunt them. It's so weird. Um, but yeah, no, so they, uh, that was a massive offshoot. But yeah, that's my, that was my life plan, what to be a profiler for behavioural analysis. You, you, you. Do you know why specifically a profiler for the BAU? What? Aside from Criminal Minds, it's a great show. Because they're not field agents and they're not required to carry a gun and because I, I cannot shoot for shit. <laughs> I have the worst aim anybody has ever seen. It is true. It is dreadful. So going back to the movie, I'm going to tell you something now that you probably didn't know, and uh, I'm kind of intrigued to get your opinion on it. Okay. There was a sequel planned for this. Oh Jesus! A Christ. a Fincherless Pitless sequel. So there was a treatment written for a film called Eight. Oh fuck off! But I'm going to tell you, it exists. The film exists. And does it? Yeah. 
So basically, what is it actually called? No, I'm gonna like let me finish what I was saying. Okay. So they wrote the story, mm-hmm. and it was meant to be that Mills was in an insane asylum. Okay. And After what he did, I'm assuming. Yeah, and Somerset had developed psychic abilities, and the, he uses the psychic abilities to hunt down a serial killer who he has a psychic connection with. After everybody turned the idea down and David Fincher said absolutely categorically that there would never be a sequel to this movie. I feel like I know what film It got rewritten as Solace and it came out in 2015 starring Colin Farrell, Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Anthony Hopkins. And Anthony Hopkins is the character who has the psychic abilities. Not the film I thought it was going to be. What film did you think it was going to be? The the one that had like glass and all of that are based around. Oh, Split. No, not Split. Because uh, there was one before Split. Unbreakable. Unbreakable. I thought yeah. it was going to be Unbreakable. Haven't seen it, but I know there's like psychic powers and shit involved in that. So, yeah, how how would you have felt if they'd made... Because I feel like this movie stands perfectly fine on its own and it, it should only have ever been a contained story. And I feel like making a sequel to it would have been utterly pointless. Yeah, this movie doesn't need a sequel and it would have... I feel like a sequel would have undone everything that this movie... Yeah, yeah it would have, it like, would have... retroactively destroyed everything you know about the first movie. It would have S-Darko'd it. What are you doing? Hmm? What are you doing? Well, I was just looking at random facts about the movie. Um, you know, yeah, there's zero reason for a, a sequel. And also, yes, to S-Darko, that movie is dreadful, but I do love it because what? it's so shit. One of the things I do find interesting about this movie, so alternate casting, Denzel Washington was offered Brad Pitt's part and he turned it down because he thought the film was too dark and evil. And it was a decision that he later regretted after he saw a screening of it. Alternatively, David Fincher thought that Morgan Freeman would pass on the movie because he would think it was too low rent and he was the first person to sign on. Um, And New Line wanted to change the ending and Brad Pitt said he wouldn't do the movie if they changed the ending. Because they didn't like the the way that the film ended. See, the thing is, like, the thing that makes me... Like, obviously this film has become a bit of a meme because of the what's in the box. What's in the box? Like, I, for the longest time, thought there could be any number of things in that box. And the beautiful part of it is that they never show it. Like, David Fincher doesn't show you what's in the box. And I think that that's a fucking... It makes the final revelation so much more powerful. Mm. And then the line delivery of, like... I took a souvenir, her pretty head, because that tells you everything that you need to know about what's in the box. Yeah. But the film has become a little bit of a meme because of the what's in the box thing. What's in the box? What's in the box? But what, so so we can kind of wrap this up. What are your overall thoughts on the film as a whole? Like, did you enjoy it? Did you not enjoy it? Like, would you, w- would it make, I mean, he has a very distinct and like, would it make you want to go and watch any more of David Fincher's movies? Because I don't really know how you feel about David Fincher as a director. Yeah. Wow. So, okay, I don't give a shit about directors. We've spoken about this on Yeah, I know, movies. but, like, you've seen his films. I have. Did you enjoy like, his films? I, I, mean, I, I mean, enjoyed Social Network. Yeah. I thought Benjamin Button was terrible. I mean, the thing is, to be fair, all of his films that I've seen, which are all of them, Benjamin Button is the only one I don't like, but I do appreciate it as a film. And you only like Social Network because Andrew Garfield's in it. I imagine if he's not in that film, you don't like that film as much. To be fair, no, because I really like the plot of that film. 
I enjoy... I just enjoy the plot. I think it's a really good film. It's a really well put together movie. Yes, Andrew Garfield is the reason I watched it because I'm a, a woman who finds Andrew Garfield exceptionally attractive. He's um, not even the most attractive person in that film. I know, there's also Justin Timberlake. Brenda Song is in that movie and she is terrifying. She's also That woman off. scares the fucking shit out of me. But yeah, I won't, I'm not going to deny I watched that movie because I like Andrew Garfield. I fucking love Andrew Garfield. Not only is he attractive, he's an excellent actor. Um, there this movie. Th- that movie is the only evidence of it in his entire career that supports you that theory. You fuck right off. He is amazing in The Social Network, but that is the only film uh, he is good uh, in. Uh, Bree, he is phenomenal. Um, Hacksaw Ridge is... Oh, actually, Hacksaw Ridge is a pretty good movie. Jesus Christ. I don't like all movies. I only watched it because Andrew Garfield was in it. That movie is beautiful, phenomenal, and well acted what do you think across is working? the board. What do you think his working relationship with Mel Gibson was like on that movie? I have no idea. I have no idea. Because he seems like quite a passive guy, and Mel Gibson is a cunt. I don't really know. I, you know, I don't unless unless it's somebody I specifically like. I don't really pay attention to celebrities. Mm. So um, I feel like you can't avoid the Mel Gibson thing, though. No, <laughs> like... I know he's a dick, but like I don't really think about shit like that. I'm like, I watched it. Andrew Garfield was in it. It was good. But no, I think Andrew Garfield's a really good actor, and I will defend him on that because I, I honestly, as much as like I will joke, but I only watch shit he's in because I think he's hot. I do honestly think he's a really good mm. actor. And I love. I love, I love a massive chunk of his body of work, which is why I need to watch Never Let Me Go because he is in it and I've still not seen it. Um, uh, this movie, I think if I'd have just watched it, I'd have probably walked away and gone, that was really enjoyable. But where I've watched it and then done the podcast where I've had to like think about it and like pull at it a little bit, it fell apart very quickly mm-hmm. for me. So I'd say if you're just going to watch a film and you don't, you don't, you know, you're not going to overthink things in it, it's an enjoyable film. But the problem I do have is the minute you start questioning the movie, it does start falling apart. Uh-huh. And I am sorry that I did just pick apart an entire ending of a movie that is like, I know you love and is also a very well respected film. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, though, it's not the only one of his movies you can do it with. Like, I've seen people rip apart Gone Girl. Mm. Uh, but I think... But also, like, at the end of the day... And like, and Fight Club. It, you could rip Fight the, Club the, the apart The thing as well. is, is, whenever I do stuff like this and I start tearing at the plot and pulling it apart, I'm not pulling apart David Finch's work. It's mm. really beautifully directed. He does an excellent job. It's very entertaining. I'm pulling apart the writing team. Mm-hmm. Who wrote this movie? And I think that's the thing a lot of people forget when you go after movies by directors they love. They're like, oh, well, he's a really great director. I'm like, I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that the writing but for this film was not the best writing they could I mean, there they is... think through all of the plot points they yeah. needed to to get from beginning to end. There are obviously some people where both things work, though. Like, you can easily rip apart Tarantino's movies for a writing because he fucking writes and directs everything because he's a narcissist. Yeah. But you know Same as M. Night Shyamalan. Like, with this, I'm not picking apart David Finch's work. The movie is very well shot, it's beautifully directed, and it is, for a movie that is incredibly dark, normally I will complain, I don't like dark films, you can't see shit at all. The movie is so well lit while still being dark. It is both dark literally and figuratively. Yeah, but you know what I mean? So normally you watch a film that is shot with a dark palette mm-hmm. and you lose points of the movie because you can't see what's happening in certain scenes because of how 
dark they actually are. That fucking fight, the fucking battle of um, Winterfell in Game of Thrones is an excellent, <laughs> excellent proof of this. Whereas this, yes, it is dark. The palette is dark. A lot of it is shot in darkness, overnights and stuff like that. And it's always raining, so it's quite cloudy and grey. At no point in this movie am I watching it going, what's happening? Yeah. I can't. Have they got something in their hands? Like, I could make out everything. It's beautifully done to the point where you still feel like the oppressive nature of the darkness of this movie while still being well lit enough you can see the scenes also one of the great things that he does that you mentioned there of talking about the darkness and the lighter mm -hmm. levels is before the reveal of who john doe is there's certain scenes where his face is blacked out mm -hmm. like he's looking directly at the camera but his face is essentially blacked out it's hidden in shadows and i think that is fucking mm -hmm. genius yeah so i will i will give david Hinchev excellent points on this he's it's he, it's a very well shot movie but yeah the the i, I think where it falls apart is the writing mm. and the fact that they obviously I, I think what they did was they were like this is a really smart ending that's how this movie ends and then they basically tried to write the story from the ending yeah. backwards and um, in, in doing so they've lost plot points that needed to be there to lead to the ending they wanted or they've written it, didn't have an ending, and gone, that's more likely what they did. They wrote it and went, oh, fuck, how do we end it? I know. And then written it, and they've not gone back and gone, oh, right, well. Because the thing is, is if we're led to believe that, like, him and Tracy were endgame, and, like, that was where it was, we could have easily had a few interspersed shots of, like, what Tracy was doing while all this was going on, and, like... Mm. And um, John's character, maybe not prominent so you can see him, but if you go back and rewatch him, you catch him in the back of scenes where he's following like her. Like fucking Mysterio in Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I've yeah, seen it in saying. a few movies where <coughs> you rewatch it and you'll catch, you'll be like, oh, hang on a fucking second. That's the killer. Like, he's stalking her and you... Yeah. He's, they're not prominent in it. And I think if they were plot points, that's something David Fincher would have done. Mm. Because it seems like the kind of thing he'd think about is like have him in the background of shots, but not prominent, so you don't notice him until you've rewatched the movie yeah. a few times, and you catch these subtle little hints. Of I like, mean, oh fuck! To be, if I'm being, com if I'm being completely honest, and to be fair, I do think I have to give a little bit of a bit of slack. This is David Fincher's second movie coming yeah. off of Alien, and this is the first thing that Andrew Kevin Walker ever wrote. So it's first time writer, second time director. Like, Do you know what? If you hadn't told me this was David Fincher's second film ever, I would have never known. Because it is he feels like a seasoned director watching yeah. the movie. But a first time writer makes a lot more sense. But you would have thought there'd have been somebody checking the script over going, well, this, this ending doesn't make... You've got nothing that leads us to this ending. Also, the fact that you don't meet the killer until the very end kind of irritates me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because I always like that where they're dotted throughout the story and then when you finally start tying the pieces together, it makes that clear picture of like, of course it was him. Yeah. It's been clear it was him the entire time. But we don't meet him until halfway through the movie and then even at that point, we never see his face until he hands himself in. The There is, if you're looking for it, if you go into this movie knowing that Kevin Spacey plays John Doe, it's very obvious that he's the photographer because as he runs down the stairs you get a really good shot of his face under the wig and the glasses mm. so it, it is very obvious that it's him as the photographer that is harassing but, Mills but obviously you have to know that it's him and then you have yeah, to do a lot of work the, the, to put the two and two thing together is, if they'd have done this so 
if it had been a, a more seasoned writer would looked over the looked over it <coughs> because the plot line is good i think it just needed a little bit of tweaking to just make it great hmm. and that's the problem it has it falls down is if they'd implemented him at other points in the film because we could have known Kevin Spacey was in it all along. If you look him up on the cast list now in modern day, we know Kevin Spacey's in this yeah. movie. But they could have dotted him throughout the film of like just somebody who gets interviewed at a crime scene. Or like, do you know what I mean? Like somebody Yeah, but then I think that takes away points. from the police being on the back foot through the movie and them not knowing who it is. So it is a bit of a I think it's a bit of a balancing act of trying to give the audience a oh my god, this guy is so far ahead of the police, we have no idea who he is, and also giving the audience that little bit of, well, it's been him the whole time kind of thing. And I think you're putting that in there because of, like, your knowledge of crime shows. It's not even that. It's not just crime shows. It's any crime movie you watch at any point. You will meet the criminal at some point. Yeah. And there's this really lovely moment when you finally fit the pieces mm-hmm. together of you going, oh, that was fucking smart. And I feel like this movie kind of lacks that because you don't have the pieces to pull But it gives you, it gives you that moment. They, they literally give you that moment when they're in John Doe's apartment and he sees the fucking photos in the bathtub and he goes, we had him, we had him all along and we let him go. Yeah, but it's... That's, no, because the thing is, is there's, we never... It's, I feel like it's hard to explain if you're not a big crime fan. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're reading a crime book, you'll get towards the end and all of the pieces will start fitting together. No, I know what you're saying. And the fact that, aside from the one, like, eureka moment of, oh, he was the photographer, there's nothing else for us to pull from. No, like, I... oh, he was the photographer. That's great. We didn't see his face. We don't know what he looks like. We have no idea who this character actually mm. is because we never meet him at any point in the movie. Until he hands himself in. Yeah. But then the thing is, I think in order for you to do... For for them to do what you want them to do, or what you're suggesting, the reveal moment doesn't play as well as it does. And I don't think the ending plays as well as it does. So it's, it, is, it, is, it is a case of, like, having your cake and eating it too. Like, the thing is, though, I, I feel think, like... If, to some degree. If there was anybody else playing the killer, <coughs> they could have got away with doing it. If they cast an unknown as the killer... Mm. Like a, or a smaller time actor who people had never really known much about their work previously, it would have worked quite well because they could have easily put him in like the background of scenes, yeah. have him being interviewed by another police officer mm-hmm. like in the background of one scene about the crime, mm. and then because it's not a big face, it's not a big name, you don't really pay too much attention to the character, and then at the end when it's revealed, it's then you kind of see all of those little moments. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's just that I've I've read and watched a lot of crime, so I kind of there's a pattern I like it to follow, and like there's a very distinctive that is how a crime film is shot, that is how a crime show is shot, is how a, how a story is told. Yeah. And I just feel like it's missing a little bit from this, but, and the ending just makes me now now I've picked it apart. I think if I hadn't have done this, if we hadn't recorded a podcast in this episode, I would have probably really enjoyed it, and I wouldn't have thought much about it. But now I've had to sit and think about it. I've really I've gone a bit like. Oh yeah, that could have been better. Oh, that could have been better. Well, I didn't like that bit actually. So, what what would you be your final score for this movie? Um, I'm giving it a four because it is enjoyable. I just think it's the last forty minutes or so you kind of let it down a little bit, but only if you're looking for it, which I was. Mm. Um, if you're not looking for for it, then it, it it's a really great film. 
I think it's fairly obvious what I'm going to give the film. Yeah, five, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, of course I am. Because you sure you don't want to give it seven? Because no. <laughs> Fincher is Fincher is amazing. I love him, and I love this film. Like I've always loved this film. Um, it's weirdly, it's one of those films like I can put on. Like it's one of those weird comfort movies. Like I'm like, oh, I'll just put this on. Like I've ironed while watching this movie before. That's and, like I, if I'm at a loose end, I'll put this movie on because. It is one of those movies where I'm constantly, like, impressed by how good it is. And especially, like, you know, as we said, David Fincher, second-time director, Andrew Walker, first-time director, uh, first-time writer, like, Morgan Freeman at the peak of his career, Gwyneth Paltrow and Brad Pitt before they're both about to explode, like, and become the most famous people on the planet. Like, Mm. the performances that he gets out of them, and obviously it's the first of three collaborations that David Fincher and Brad Pitt did together as well. Because obviously they reteamed four years later for Fight Club, and then they reteamed like nine years later for the Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Um, he kind of became the Leo to Fincher's Scorsese, or I guess now more appropriately, the Leo to Tarantino. Um, you know, but I feel like for as good as this movie is, and for as much as it's been ripped off over the last twenty-five years. Um, it still holds up as the best version of this film. And I think there are a lot of films that have ripped it off um, and have not done as good of a job. Um, And I think even Fincher, like when he went back to Serial Killers and did Zodiac and he did Mindhunter, I don't think either of those things... uh, It's a sacrilege to say I don't think that Zodiac is as good as Seven because of course it is. But I think... Seven is a much more entertaining film because it's much more streamlined and it's a much more focused film than what Zodiac is. Not to say that Zodiac isn't amazing because it is, but there's a lot of bloat in the middle of that movie. Um, But, you know, that has been our films for July. I cannot wait to cover The Return of the Living Dead next week and for Lee to turn around and say how implausible it is that zombies or whatever it is that she's going to pick apart next week in this movie... Um, but, this is basically how I've started dealing with watching horror movies. I've just started picking them apart. But yeah, so we'll be back next week with Return of the Living Dead. Um, as always, come follow us on Twitter, S-I-M-A-H-F-Pod, on Tumblr and Instagram, at so I Married a Horror Fan, all one word on both. Um, check out our previous episode. We did Alien last week. We did Scream and Evil Dead in this month. And we also did 5 by 5s on true stories that inspired horror films. And we also did a special episode that went out this Friday just gone on uh, things that scare us. Also, we realised literally this weekend that uh, I kept saying, oh, come back to um, my fear due to us, and we never actually discussed it. So you're just going to have to wait until we inevitably cover us. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll talk about it. Uh, which will be in September. Will it? Yes. So thank you for listening. I know this episode's gone a little bit longer than necessary, but we, we needed to get some stuff off of our chest. So... Uh, We will see you next week. I've been Simon. I've been Lee. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye.